Hi, I'm Tom Griffith, and welcome to the Greater Formation and Power podcast. Here we'll discuss topics and practices that will help you deepen your intimacy with God the Father, exercise your authority in Jesus the Son, and move in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to walk in God's truth and intimacy and power. We need all three strands working together in our lives because we believe that nothing else will actually do. What I'd like to share tonight is um, a passage that I I was going to just kind of do a synopsis thing to get what I wanted to share. And instead, I want to take the time to read it. I won't share long, so don't worry. We won't be not going to take you for another 40 minutes here. But I I do want you to kind of listen, receive. And so it's going to be a passage uh, in in the gospel. So you're going to see Jesus. But I want you to, you might want to close your eyes. You don't need to close your eyes. But I do want you to uh, use your imagination and enter into it. So I'm going to read it kind of slowly just because our familiarity makes us move into like principles of stuff that that become useless and powerless if we don't really engage the word. So it's in Matthew 9, and uh, it's two different kind of stories that are right next to each other. Uh, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
For I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners. So we see Jesus exhibiting authority to heal and to forgive. And he went to people who needed healing and forgiveness. That's kind of important. That what he had to offer is who he went to hang with. And I think that might be significant for us in life to recognize those deposits and burdens in our heart to bring the kingdom of God. That's where you go. That's who you go to. If your life is about you, you don't go anywhere. But Jesus exhibited authority to heal and to forgive. And so where did he go? He went to those who needed healing and forgiveness. Now, the religious people had difficulty with both of those things. Often they're having trouble with him healing folks because the main place that he did heal people was on the Sabbath. They had rules against that. Not scriptural rules, but additive rules to define what rest means. Jim brings up learn to rest. That doesn't mean don't heal people. (laughs) It means learn to rest in your soul. And how about the person who's being healed? There's rest being exercised, being released to a person. It's funny that they would look at the rules of the healing and not look at the rest and the restoration for the one being healed. That's important for us to think about. The religious people had a difficulty with his healing and his forgiveness. They will have difficulty Religious meanings usually means doing the right thing, making right judgments. Religious people as a whole are not good at forgiveness. They're good at pointing out what needs to be forgiven. It's interesting to me that the that people of faith. So this was just a this was this comes from I was reading earlier this week in a thing, and, and I mean the, that text. And so a couple of days ago, I thought it's interesting that people of faith kind of flock together, kind of like we are. <laughs> people of faith flock together, um, then they tend to exclude others. Look at it. Look at how they don't know how to receive people into their midst very much how they develop kind of secret kind of language. And it's about like, oh, they don't, you know, it's, they they don't really understand what we're talking about and what's important to us. And so there's a tendency to uh, exclude. So instead of freely giving out of what they've received, they, or I will say we, close the doors behind us. We get together and close the doors behind us. And that's the exact thing that Jesus called the Pharisees out for in Matthew 23, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You shut the kingdom of heaven in man's faces. You yourselves don't enter in, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
That's not what Jesus, I mean, look at he look at the, the picture of entering this house of people who are cheaters or they're they're not, let's just say they're not running to the synagogue. Isn't that like exactly what we would want? Now, it isn't what they understood. It's the opposite of how their faith had progressed, which is also a tendency. We want to be with more and more mature people of faith, and we lose reality of what we're, our maturity of faith is all about. So there's this tendency to actually come in and close the door. And so that morning, my wife came downstairs, and I was really like, this was like, you know, sometimes you read things in scripture and it gets on you. Like it was really making me unhappy. And I said, how, how can this be? Because I, it was like I could see it in so much. And, and almost like it felt like when this, it felt like almost every setting that there's this kind of like we come in, got our little group. And in a sense, there's a closing out. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Why would people of faith be like that? And my wife gave two kinds of answers to kind of quickly. And at first, my thought was they were trite. And they might have even felt that way to her. But as I pondered it, it wasn't. And it was, she said, well, uh, selfishness and greed. I thought, wow, that's a greed's a weird word to put in at that moment. And, I, and so I sat there, and she didn't say more. She went on to do what she was doing. And I was sitting there with those words, and I thought of the difference between selfishness and greed, and the opposite of that really is empathy. The opposite of selfishness isn't just to be selfless. We'll use words like that, but I want to use the word empathy. And empathy means I understand from you, from your perspective. That's the opposite of selfishness. I'm understanding you as if I was you. Your needs, your emotions, your perspective. Our culture is getting worse and worse even while we're sitting here at empathy. I mean, there's studies all over that what, what cell phones and information are doing are making it so that the culture is losing the ability to empathize with others. Life is becoming more about ourself and making it amidst all the pressures. But empathy is big, and the opposite also of greed is generosity. Greed is always based on scarcity. It's there's not enough. I need more. I need more. That's a scarcity mentality. Generosity is the, I can give it away because it's continually coming. Well, we know those are values. Those are kingdom values, right? Empathy, do unto others as you'd have them do. That's really an empathy statement. Generosity, those are kingdom values, but that's not. So that, so that had me thinking again a little more deeply. We are who we are without the transforming power of God's kingdom. which is going to look like selfishness and greed. We kind of say that if you pray a prayer and say you believe something, that that will change in you. And I'm submitting to you a thought that, again, you if you've been around me for a while, you know I think these ways more and more these days. 
that praying that prayer, entering into that relationship might not transform you because I look and it doesn't seem to. The encounter of God is powerful and it might be healing, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a transformed life. Mm-hmm. The disciples were walking in that power, but their lives weren't naturally transformed. What transforms, which is either an aid or it may be completely necessary, and I'm leaning towards the latter, is meaningful kingdom discipleship. And that's what Jesus did. The disciples were discipled by Jesus. They weren't prayed for, and they didn't pray a prayer, and their lives were changed. They were discipled over years with him. And he discipled them even after he rose from the dead. And I think that's when they got the most powerful discipleship that's ever been on the planet. Can you imagine meeting with Jesus after he rose from the dead like that? That's all. That's all. I would like that one. That, just give me one of those little sessions. And so that by discipleship, I mean the walking in the in, next to somebody and the training how to think in terms of kingdom, and the training how to repent and turn from selfishness and greed. That doesn't just happen by praying a prayer. It happens by being tested and tested and renewed and renewed and renewed till we're changed in how we think and how we pray. And it doesn't just relate to religious life. As a matter of fact, that isn't, Jesus doesn't even, he's not, when is he even talking about like how to go to synagogue better, except when he's saying pray and if somebody has something against you, he's always thinking about living your life. And so discipleship really is about faith, but it's not just about faith. It's about discipleship in marriage. It's about discipleship in family. It's discipleship in friendships. It's discipleship in workplace. It's discipleship in how we do government, how we do laws. It is thinking, thinking kingdom, living it out, living it out. And you don't get that by a prayer or an encounter or coming into a faith community. You get it by being discipled. And that's the only thing that actually changes lives is discipleship in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God that does the work that can undo the work that's been done in us, whether that is abuse or hurt or strongholds or family line stuff or all the stuff in the second semester of the release, the resource of heaven, it helps All that stuff needs to be applied and kneaded into the loaf of somebody's life by and with somebody. The kingdom is a relational growing in the truths of God, and there's no way around it that I can see. That leaves me in a place still of not like encouragement or hope (laughs) because to do that well, One, we have to be giving ourselves to growing well. And two, we have to be giving ourselves to discipling and being discipled. And I I still don't really see that very much. Or the things that we call discipleship 
could be as good as, and, and if you know me, you know I love the idea of discovery Bible study. That's awesome. Helps us to understand what it meant, what it means, and what we should do in response to it. It's still not discipling. Discipling is me helping you follow Jesus as Lord. That's, you know, that's a taking those things and putting them into like, how are you doing it? So um, that part still serves as a big weight on me. And you know, today I met with some of you know uh, um, Joe. Uh, I'm spacing on Joe's last name. Help me, Polia. Reed. Joe, Joe Reed. Reed. Joe Reed, who's somebody who God's really using to multiply discipleship in all of our country and in other countries. But we were talking about some of this because this is gripping me. And I said, so, yes. If as the kingdom comes, it's going to scale. We will see a a multiplication of discipleship, right? Like very soon on the planet, even in our own spheres. But what are we going to be doing with those people who want to come into the kingdom of God? And we say, oh, yeah, here's great. Here's how you pray. And here, here, let me show you just how to read the Bible. That's okay. It's not enough. And so what's really important right now is for us to grow to be mature disciplers who are going to help others become mature disciplers because the the onslaught of temptation, false understanding, challenge, overwhelm, being left to our own devices, those temptations in our mind are almost insurmountable without real discipleship. So I submit that to you all in a few for a few things. One is where are you significantly receiving discipleship at this stage of your life because you do not outgrow it? It is not something that there's some a few transferable concepts. That's a camp camp or a crew term that I loved crew in college, and it's very valuable to get people going. One of the best things in the world was the systems of how they would do things. But it's that that gives the idea that when you've gone through that, you've been discipled. And I want to encourage you know you're discipled your whole life because you're, others are helping you follow Jesus as Lord more clearly. But where are you um, receiving concretely, you know, receiving discipleship and how? And if you can't answer that, that's something I want to encourage you to be praying about and maybe an action step. The other is, where are you giving discipleship and how? And if that's not clear, I want you to be praying about that. <music>